This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Father, as we come before you now, we're, we're aware that uh, we are joining with believers around the world. And so we pray for our team in Thailand and for those that they're ministering to. We, we pray that you would be with them as they are worshiping with others in a church with many different languages that is really a foretaste of what we're going to experience one day around your throne. We pray for the refugees that they are ministering to as they deliver food, as they deliver love, as they deliver the good news of the gospel. We pray that you would open hearts to respond. We pray that you would would encourage believers that they're ministering to who are are fleeing just uh, ruthless persecution and that you would use this experience, as you so often do, when we, when we seek to minister to others, we get the biggest blessing. And so we pray for blessing on our team, even as they pour out. We pray that you would bless us now, as we open your word. We pray that by your spirit, you would deal deeply and definitively in our lives. Help us to give you our whole focus right now in this time, as we desire to encounter you and hear from you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. And if you're new, we have been in a series called Life in the Spirit. We're looking at different texts in the New Testament that deal with the Holy Spirit. And during the month of August, we're walking through one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, the 8th chapter of Romans. So we're walking through Romans 8 verse by verse and today we have come to verse 12. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17 this morning and talk about mortification and adoption. Mortification and adoption. Romans 8 and we're going to look at verses 12 through 17. If you'll find that in your copy of God's Word. And follow along with me as I read. The Apostle Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Well, unless you move in sort of theological circles mortification, probably not a word that you throw around a lot in conversation with your friends, but you probably know something about what it means. You've heard of morticians, you know that a mortician, somebody that deals with the whole, with, with death. Um, and this passage is about 
life and death. It is about wonderful life. It's about abundant life. It is about flourishing life. But it's also about putting to death that which is anti-life. That which prevents us from, from flourishing and being the people that we're called to be. Mortification and adoption. The word mortification comes from the old King James translation of verse 13 in Romans 8, which reads this way. It says, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So let's talk about mortification, first of all. What is it? What, what is mortification? Um, let's look at the way that the ESV translates that same verse. It says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now the Greek word that the King James translates as mortify, and the English Standard translates as put to death, that Greek word is a violent word. It is a killing word. Paul is saying here that in order for life to flourish the way that it's intended to, that there, there are going to be things in our lives that we need to put to death. The great Puritan theologian John Owen once said, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, A Christian life that does not involve putting to death that which drags us down into the world of the flesh is not worthy of the name. So mortification is about killing sin. It is about a declaration of war on sin. I recently read Doris Kearns Goodwin's Pulitzer Prize winning book about World War II, No Ordinary Time. And some of you can remember the day when Pearl Harbor was attacked. You can remember exactly where you were when you heard the news, the way that others of you can remember where you were when you heard about the events of 9-11. And if you remember Pearl Harbor, then you certainly remember what happened the next day when President Roosevelt went before Congress and in one of his most famous speeches said, Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a day which will live in infamy. And he went on to ask Congress for a declaration of war. The Bible is saying here that we are to declare war on sin. War on that which prevents us from experiencing the life that God has planned for us. But during World War II, we took prisoners... Americans took prisoners. In fact, we treated POWs very humanely. In this war, this war against the sinful nature, we take no prisoners. We raise the black flag. We give no quarter to sin in our lives. It means no playing games with sin. It means no rationalization for sin. No, no making excuses for sin in our lives. It means that we don't say, well, I'm just going to kind of wean myself away from sin. No, don't you understand? This is trying to kill you. 
We're talking about something that is seeking to destroy you. Unless you destroy it first. And so, we're, we're not just talking about sort of cutting weeds. You know, what, what happens when you just cut weeds, especially this time of year? They grow back in a hurry. You have to pull them up by the roots. That's what we're talking about here. Pulling sin up by the, the roots. It means that instead of just avoiding sin, that we take it a step further and we seek to avoid that which leads to temptation and sin. Paul's going to, later on in Romans, in chapter 13, he's going to say this, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. When he says to make no provision for the flesh, he's talking about starving the sinful nature instead of feeding it. He's talking about depriving it of the oxygen and the atmosphere that it needs to live. You know, we used to live in Pocosin, and which has a major problem with mosquitoes. And, you know, it didn't matter what you did. I mean, you know, you could, go, you could spray all the off that you wanted to. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't help. It didn't even help when the trucks came down your street spraying for mosquitoes. At one point, it got so bad that they got the Air Force involved and Langley Air Force, which is just a few miles away. Huge military planes would come over and they would spray the town. It, it barely made a dent in the mosquito population. The only thing that would work w would be that if you change the habitat, you would have to literally drain all of the marshes that surround and pervade that little town. You would have to fundamentally alter the habitat. Let me ask you something. Does the habitat of your life invite problems with sin? You know, the word habitat and habit are from the same family. If you're having problems with sin, and we all struggle with sin, and sometimes it can be deeply ingrained sin, habitual sin, deeply ingrained patterns of sin and, and, and thought and, and behavior. Okay, but if sin is habitual, and you just keep struggling with the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, and you're not altering anything in your life, don't expect good results. You know the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Okay, if we're going to deal with, with deeply ingrained patterns of sin, particularly habitual sin, then we've got to change the habitat of our lives. There's just no way around it. You know, and instead of just trying to avoid sin and temptation, we need to take it a step further and avoid that which leads to it. So we need to be asking ourselves questions. 
If we're struggling with, with, with habitual sin, we need to be asking questions like, okay, what situation am I usually in when this happens? Where am I, am I usually when this happens? Um, when does this usually happen? Who, if anyone, am I usually with when it happens? You see, we've got to rearrange our lives, okay, so that we are, we're, we're not just seeking to avoid sin, but avoiding being even placed in the path of temptation for it. Okay, that, that's, that's what it means to pull up the weeds of sin by the roots. But what else do we have to do? Um, you can pull weeds up by the roots, but you know what? If you don't plant something good in their place, they grow back. <laughs> they come back. And so part of, part of it is pulling them up by the roots, but then there's a second part. And the second part is replanting with something good. Okay, Planting something good in their place. And what we are to plant in the place of sin is God's word and the good news of the gospel. And we, we do that by the power of the Spirit. Because what does he say here again in verse 13? If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do we put sin to death in our own strength? Good luck with that. We put it to death by the power of the Spirit. We have to do it by the Spirit. Now, the Spirit works through the Word. It, the Spirit works through the promises of God. The Spirit works through the good news of the Gospel. And, and what did we look at last week? What did he say in verse 11 that led right into our passage today? This is amazing good news, right? It says in verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So, as believers, what has God done for us? He has raised us from death to life, spiritually. I mean, Ephesians 2.1 says we were dead in trespasses and sins. We have been made alive. We have been regenerated by the Spirit of the living God. We've brought, been brought from death to life in a spiritual sense. Given new life, forgiveness of sins, a new identity in Christ. And that's not all. One day when Christ comes again, we're going to get new bodies. Not these frail bodies that we live in that are subject to disease and aging and sin and all of that, no, they're going to be a thing of the past. We're going to have new, glorious resurrection bodies one day. Okay, and so our future is secure. Our past has been dealt with. We have these amazing promises that are ours in the gospel. Okay, that's verse 11. Verse 12. So then, okay... In other words, in light of that, in light of all of these riches that are yours in Christ, so then, in light of that, you know, and what he means there is that all of these riches that are yours in the gospel, meditate on those things. Okay, so then, in light of that, okay, in light of what is yours, so... 
what does this mean for us? It means part of how we plant, replant, okay? Um, we plant good things in the place of sin, and that is that we, we meditate on what is ours in Christ. It, it means gratitude, okay? Part, part of the way that you kill sin is to cultivate a soil of gratitude in your life. You know, every day, during, during your prayer time, just take time to count your blessings. I recommend that you, you take, 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 if you exercise, take gratitude walks. <laughs> I love doing it. Just take a walk where you're going to do nothing but just praise God and thank Him for all the blessings that are yours in Christ, the blessings of the gospel and everything that goes along with it. Um, just spend some time just in gratitude, thanking God for all that He has, has done. Okay, when, when we have that kind of a spirit, listen, that is not, that is not fertile ground for sin to live in. You know why? Because the more that we think about God's love, how much He loves us, what He has done for us in Jesus, what that does is, that causes sin to lose its allure to us. In fact, not only does sin lose its allure, but, but we hate it. I mean, we, we begin to hate that which is against the God who has loved us so much and given us so much, you know. And so that's part of, of how we, we, we kill Sin, And that's what he's talking about here. So then, okay, in light of what I've just said in verse 11, all that God's done for you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh. Let me tell you, the flesh hasn't done you any favors. <laughs> Your sinful nature hasn't done you any favors. And you don't owe it anything but war. Instead, we are indebted to the God who has loved us and given himself for us. So quit thinking that you are owed. You know what? When you start thinking like that, then you're providing fertile ground for sin in your life. When you start thinking that you're the one who's owed instead of a debtor, you're, you're, opening, you're opening the door right there for sin. Tim Keller is incredibly insightful on this. He says, sin can only grow in the soil of self-pity and a feeling of oddness. I'm not getting my needs met. I've had a hard life. God owes me. People owe me. I owe me. When you start thinking like that, <laughs> let me tell you, friend, the door of your life is wide open to sin. Now, instead of thinking, of thinking that we're owed we need to understand that, that we are debtors. <laughs> we have been given. The truth of the matter is that we have been given so much love in the gospel. Um, so, we mortify sin um, by pulling up the weeds by the roots and by replanting the good things in their place. Let's talk about adoption. Adoption. What is it? What is it? What's the Bible talking about when it, when it talks about adoption? Well, Paul says, beginning in verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, when we're talking in our culture about both genders, we would not use a masculine pronoun like this. But there's a reason why Paul uses it here. 
Okay? And later on in the text, he's going to use another word that's translated as children. And obviously, it's clear he's talking about both genders um, as he is here. But he uses the term sons here. He uses a masculine pronoun in verse 14 for a very specific reason. And the reason had to do with Roman law in the first century, the law of adoption. See, Paul is writing here to the church at Rome. And under Roman law, and his readers would have known this, the laws of adoption as it related to sonship were very specific and and really quite amazing. In that culture, there was slavery, right? Well, what could happen is that if, if a wealthy individual had no heir, he could adopt a young a boy or a young man he could adopt him as his very own son and so in a single moment of time this boy or young man would move from being a slave to a son and an heir Because the moment that he was adopted, two things became true. Under Roman law, when a son was adopted, the following was true. First, all his debts and obligations were immediately paid, which is why a lot of people were in slavery to begin with. Okay, It was due to a financial situation. But the moment he was adopted, the father would pay all debts, all obligations, gone, done. Second, He received a new name and instantly became heir to all his father possessed in a moment of time. Now, you, as a Christian, have been adopted by a much greater father. Okay? As believers, we have been adopted by a much greater father and the following is true of us. We have a brand new identity. Our sin debt is paid in full. We are heirs to all our Father possesses, and He owns the world. That is what it means to be an adopted child of God. Christian, this is you. This is you in Christ. Now, what marks children of God. In your family, there's probably family likenesses and things. Okay, but what's the family likeness? What what distinguishing characteristic is there of a child of God? It's that we have the Spirit, right? He says in verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the mark of of a child of God is that we are people of the Spirit, right? We have the Spirit. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We were all born once, physically. But to become a child of God, we have to be born again by the Spirit. Christians have the Holy Spirit. That's the distinguishing characteristic of our lives. Remember in verse 9 from last week, Paul says, You, however, are not of the flesh, but in the Spirit, 
if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Look at verse 15 again. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, it's very common in our culture to talk about everybody on earth being a child of God. Is that really true? Well, it's true that every person is created in the image of God. And just because, because every person is created in the image of God, they should be treated with, with dignity and, and love and so forth because every person is created in God's image. In one of his sermons in Acts, Paul uh, says that we are all his offspring, but that's a different word, different Greek word than the word for children here. Um, the word for child child of God, children of God, that word is only used for believers in the Bible. And the reason for that is that none of us are children of God by nature. The Bible says we become children of God through adoption when we trust in Jesus. Jesus the, the Bible says in John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We become a child of God when we receive Christ, when we trust in him. At that point, God, when we trust in the Son, God adopts us as sons and daughters. That's adoption. Now, what are the privileges of that? Let's talk more about just these breathtaking privileges of being a child of God. The privileges of a child of God. First of all, security. Security. He says in verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now again, Paul is drawing on his first century context here where slavery was very common. Now, if a slave was fortunate, they would have a master who was kind and so forth and maybe they would have a good relationship with their master and so uh, they would, would obey partly out of love. But there was always an element of fear. Right? There was always, in, even in their obedience to a good master, there was always an element of, of, of fear of you know, what could happen. Just like today, I mean, it, it, even in the workplace. I mean, hopefully, you, you get along well. With, employees get along with employees and employers get along. And hopefully, uh, you get along well with your boss and you, know, you, you desire to, 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 to please from your heart and all of that. But there's always something in the background, too, and that's the possibility of job loss. Right? It's always there, the fear of, of, of losing a job, even if everybody gets, gets along. Okay, but in a family, in a healthy family, are children afraid that their parents are going to disown them if they do wrong? Now, they might have a healthy fear of discipline, but that's different, right? 
A healthy fear of discipline is very different from a fear that, you know what, if I mess up, my mom and dad are going to abandon me. That is not an emotion that children feel in a healthy, loving family. So if, if sinful parents like us are not going to abandon our kids or forsake our kids if they do wrong, if we love them that much, even though our love is very imperfect, how much greater is God's love for his children? God's love is perfect. If, if we wouldn't abandon our kids, you know, if, if they messed up, do you think that God's going to abandon his children? No, that's why Jesus says in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the first privilege of a child of God is security. Second, authority. Authority. Again, verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. In a first century Roman household, a slave had no authority, but a son did. <laughs> a son bore the family name. <laughs> he was the son of the father. He bore the name of the owner. Christian, you bear the family name. And therefore, you are a child, you are a son or daughter of the king. And therefore, you should walk with confidence and poise because of who you belong to. Authority. Third, intimacy. Intimacy. Again, verse 15. You do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is an Aramaic word. The people that Paul is writing to in Rome, they didn't speak Aramaic. They spoke Greek. But Paul thinks that this Aramaic word, which was spoken by Jesus, is so important that he retains it, even in speaking to Greek speakers, and writing to Greek speakers. Abba was the Aramaic word that Jesus used in prayer. When he addressed the Father in prayer, Abba is the word that he used. Nobody prayed like that before Jesus. Abba was a tender, intimate term that was used within the family unit. Kind of like the way that we speak the word daddy. Okay, nobody calls me daddy but three people in this world. Okay, the three that are under my roof. It's, it's a tender, intimate term that is used within the family. Jesus comes along. And that's the word that he uses when he addresses God in prayer. And, and, and furthermore, not only did Jesus use it, he teaches us to use it. He says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father, Abba, 
What was Jesus trying to communicate? Jesus is trying to communicate that if you are a child of God, God is not distant from you. He's intimate. The relationship between you and God is an intimate relationship. It is a child-father relationship. Not a distant relationship, but a very intimate family relationship. And he teaches us to pray that way. And that's what Paul is saying here, that we have the privilege of, of addressing God as our Father, as our Abba. We belong to him. We're his, we're his children. And so intimacy, fourth, assurance. Assurance is another privilege of being a child of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Part of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to assure us of that. If you're not a Christian, it's very difficult for me to explain this to you. If you are a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. There are times when you go before the Father in prayer and it could be that you're going through a difficult period or time of doubt or whatever and a voice just whispers to you, maybe not an audible voice, but a voice louder than an audible voice, (laughs) whispers to you, you are mine, I love you. You belong to me and everything is going to be okay. You know what I'm talking about if you're a believer. That's the Holy Spirit. That's that's the ministry of the Spirit assuring us that we belong to Him. Fifth, inheritance. Inheritance. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let me tell you something. No matter what kind of suffering you might have to go through on this earth, your future is awesome. It's not only awesome, but it's settled. It is secure. It's done. It is waiting for you. Your inheritance is is settled And where are we headed next time? Verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that our past has been taken care of. Our present is assured. Our future is settled. We have an inheritance just waiting for us. And the victory has already been won. And that if we're in Christ, then we are your beloved sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of the King. Of a Father who loves with a perfect love. Who will never leave us nor forsake us. And a Father who owns the world. Holds the world in the palm of His hand. And holds us children. And will never let us go. What amazing promises are ours in the gospel. Father, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know the reality of that. Who doesn't yet know the reality of what it means to be your child. I pray that you would open their heart today. 
to see Jesus, to see that Jesus died for their sins, rose from the dead, is coming again. And I pray that you would open their hearts to trust in Jesus, to turn to him and trust him and welcome him, receive him into their life as Savior, Lord. Pray for believers here today that our minds and hearts would just be fired by the glorious good news of the gospel and that 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 news would be so wonderful to us that sin just loses its appeal. Work in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with Him, you've got questions, you want to know more, I'm going to be here uh, during our closing song. I'll be here after the service as well. Love to minister to you just any way that we possibly can. Uh, if you're here just in need of, uh, of a prayer, uh, if you're here and you say, I, you know, I want, to, I want to take steps to be a part of this church family, we would love to talk with you about that. Uh, you come as we stand and sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. And you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.